we are coming after you. We are coming after every single one of you and demanding that you take action, demanding that you make a change. You better listen to her or she just might vote. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and on Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, on Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and many other fine affiliates across this great land, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, as usual these days in these United States, there is way too much going on. Way too much going on uh, for us to possibly keep uh, keep track of. So uh, we're going to cover some of it, but we're also going to sort of duck out a little bit to look ahead, to look ahead at the 2018 elections, which are already underway. That's right. People are already voting right now in the great state of Texas. Desi Doyen, in your home, your great home state of Texas. Yes, despite all the voter suppression activities going on in Texas, folks are still getting out and voting. Well, I should say they're trying to, given all that suppression. But uh, yes, the primary voting is already underway in the great state of Texas in the uh, midterms. Uh, for 2018. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that and about um, what it is, if anything, that Democrats actually stand for other than we are not Donald Trump. We are not the Republicans. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but let's start with some other election news. Another special election day on Tuesday. So here we are talking about the results. And yes, Another Democratic pickup from Republicans in another district won by Trump by a huge margin back in 2016. This time, the Democrats picked up a seat in rural Kentucky as Democrats just won their 37th red to blue state legislative flip of the cycle. According to Daily Coast Elections, Kentucky Democrats reclaimed a rural district in the state House of Representatives there in Kentucky. 
Linda Belcher, the uh, Democrat, a former state legislator who lost her seat in the Trump landslide in Kentucky in 2016, reclaimed the Bullitt County District by a more than two to one margin, defeating her GOP opponent, Rebecca Johnson, 68 to 32 percent. Wow, that's a blowout. That's a big blowout. The Democrat had... uh, lost her seat in 2016 by just 150 votes, less than one percentage point back then, even as Trump had carried the district with 72 percent of the vote there compared to Hillary Clinton's 23 percent. So that was a district that went to Trump in 2016 by 49 points. That's where the Democrat has now won in Kentucky. But with uh, her massive win, Belcher's massive win, that means the district actually saw an 86-point swing from Election Day in November 2016 to Election Day on Tuesday of this week. 86 points. Wow. Uh, Rand Paul, by the way, just in case you get the idea that this is some sort of a a Democratic district, Rand Paul also won that district in 2016 with 64% of the vote. Tuesday's special election in the state's House District 49 was held to replace former state rep Dan Johnson, a Republican who killed himself in December. Johnson was a pastor at a local church and had been accused of sexual abuse against a 17-year-old member of his congregation. He strongly denied the accusations, but he killed himself just days after uh, local media reported on the allegations. His widow, Rebecca Johnson, said she would uh, step in to run to replace her husband less than 24 hours after his death. The Kentucky district is the 18th formerly Republican-held district to fall into Democratic hands in a special election since Trump won. You can add uh, that to all of the uh, regularly scheduled elections, for example, in Virginia and New Jersey and so forth, um, which also saw seats flip from red to blue. Democrats, of course, see that as proof of their party's momentum as they head into the midterm elections. In 2018 alone, Democrats have won Republican-held state legislative districts in Missouri, in Wisconsin, in Florida, and yes, now in Kentucky. Republicans, however, dismiss the significance of the Tuesday results, despite that 86-point swing. They dismiss the results, uh, given the odd turn of events that led to the special election in the first place. And it certainly was odd with the seat's previous occupant having killed himself after sexual abuse allegations. But but those sexual abuse allegations for Republicans seem to be anything but odd this year after the accused child molester Roy Moore ran and lost for U.S. Senate in Alabama. Uh, Missouri's new Republican governor is currently under investigation for allegations of blackmail against a woman that he reportedly tied up and took naked pictures of. Yes, he's still the governor of Missouri at this time. And, of course, the president of the United States was accused of sexual misconduct by, uh, what was it, something like 16 women. Um, And that doesn't count the ones that he allegedly paid off. The two others, uh, one a porn star, the other a Playboy playmate that he paid off uh, reportedly to keep to keep them quiet about their, their affairs that he had with them. 
Um, that pay- those payments came just before the 2016 election in various ways. So, yeah, the, the circumstances in Kentucky really aren't quite as odd as GOP officials might like to paint them as at this point. Yeah, they seem to be kind of a running theme for the Republican Party these days. Sort of, yep. Kentucky Republican Party spokesperson uh, said uh, on Tuesday, tonight's special election has been anything but normal from the beginning and offers little resemblance to what we should expect in November. The uh, Kentucky State House Democratic leader, Rocky Adkins, said tonight's victory is also the first step of our journey to take back the Kentucky House of Representatives. And he added a week from tonight during the next special election, we intend to take the second step. So we will see as there's another special election uh, next Tuesday in the bluegrass state. Kentucky Democrats have a lot more than two steps, however, to go before they'll get within shouting distance of control of the state house in Kentucky. The chamber, which had been controlled by Democrats for a century before Republicans took over after the 2016 elections, uh, Democrats now just have 37 Democrats, uh, 37 seats among the 100 members of the House. But but that's also about the same number of Democrats in the Virginia House of Delegates last November when Democrats ended up with a 51-49 minority in the House after the election. They picked up, uh, was it something like 15 seats and that was after one election was declared a tie and the winner, a, uh, a Republican, was drawn by a lot out of a bowl. Uh, otherwise, they would have been a 50-50 split there. So we will see. Kentucky Democrats may not be dreaming after all. Uh, the Democrat Belcher, for her part, had already planned to seek a rematch with Dan Johnson before his sudden death triggered the special election. She was one of at least 28 current and former teachers who are lined up to take on incumbents in uh, November of 2018. Hooray for the teachers. Uh, Speaking of the teachers and their students, high school students across the country staged walkouts on Wednesday to demand that lawmakers tackle gun violence by implementing common-sense gun safety reforms. The so-called Never Again demonstrations began after an expelled 19-year-old former student armed with a semi-automatic military assault rifle, assault-style rifle, uh, and high-capacity ammo magazines, all legally purchased in Florida after that student killed 17 people at the Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, last week and wounded more than a dozen more. Hundreds of students across Miami-Dade and Broward County uh, in South Florida walked out of school mid-morning on Wednesday, and their action was broadcast live as news helicopters followed them. Several hundred students, including some from Stoneman Douglas, took a bus to the Florida Capitol in Tallahassee to press the issue with state lawmakers there. But shortly after they arrived from their four-hour trip to the Capitol, GOP lawmakers quickly shut down the possibility of a vote on banning the type of weapon that was used by the killer in the Parkland massacre um, and um, and used in, in, in other massacres in the state of Florida and around the country. That means there will almost certainly be no vote at all on major gun safety legislation, By the GOP NRA controlled Florida legislature, at least before the current legislative session ends on March 9th. 
In meantime, in Maryland, hundreds of students from at least three different high schools in Montgomery County walked out on Wednesday as well in protest. Many of them headed toward the U.S. Capitol for a gun control rally. Students also gathered outside the White House holding up signs, chanting thoughts and prayers are not enough before sitting down en masse in protest in front of the uh, in front of the White House. Daniel Galilo, a senior at Richard Montgomery High in Rockfield, Maryland, helped organize part of the protests locally. He said students are taking to the streets because they have had enough of politicians inactions. Galilo wrote in a uh, in a press release. We are young and we can fight until we can vote. And then we can vote out every politician that obstructs real change and is owned by the NRA. His comments about voting uh, were echoed by a lot of the other Montgomery County students interviewed uh, during the protests in uh, Maryland and in our nation's capital today. Here's some of those voices. I understand that marching wasn't automatically going to change legislation, but then I thought about it and I realized, you know, it's not just about, you know, change. Next year I'll be able to vote and people like my age can see that, you know, we're passionate about a subject. Next year when we can vote, you know, uh, we can make things happen. The next election, you know, things will happen. We can make change by voting. So this is the first step. My school actually had a bomb threat today, and with past events in Florida, I feel unsafe at school, and it, it's unfair to the students around the nation who feel unfair, unsafe at school. So I'm doing this for the for every student. I think that this is a problem that does affect students disproportionately, or young people disproportionately. And I think that our voice is really important if we're going to have change on this issue. It's important to have people who are affected by an issue be the ones to help drive change. We're young and we're tired. We're tired of waiting for, for them to fix the mess that they made. And if they don't want to listen to us right now, it's okay because we're going to vote them out. I think the students have the power because obviously in numbers we have we have a large voice and we are the upcoming generation. All of us are coming of age. I'm about to turn 18. I have a lot of friends. I have a friend that turned 18 today. A lot of friends that are becoming adults now that can vote. Um, and this is an issue that's important to us. So those were some of the uh, students Protesting in our nation's capital today. I know a lot of people have been playing these uh, amazing kids from the Stoneman Douglas High School, uh, and they're just, I, I have been so impressed with what they had to say. They're getting a lot of airtime, and deservedly so, but I wanted to play some of those voices because it's not just those kids uh, down in uh, Parkland who were directly affected by this. This has touched off what seems to be a movement all over the country among these high school kids. You heard that one saying, um, it, if they don't want to listen to us now, that's OK, because we'll vote them out in 2018 and 2020. Students also staged walkouts in Arizona, in Illinois, in Kentucky and Minnesota, among other states. Uh, I, I see this as very, very encouraging news. Not all schools, however, condone, condoned such uh, teenage activism as the HuffPost reported. 
the uh, Houston area Needville Independent School District threatened on Tuesday to suspend students for three days if they walked out or otherwise disrupted school in protest. Wow. I'm uh, I'm disappointed to hear that. Needville ISD will not allow a student demonstration during school hours for any type of protest or awareness. Superintendent Curtis Rhodes wrote in a note to parents, adding two exclamation marks after that. <laughs> Should students choose to do so, they will be suspended from school for three days and face all the consequences that come along with an out-of-school suspension. Life is all about choices, Rhodes wrote, and every choice has a consequence, whether it be positive or negative. He says the district is sensitive to school violence, but is focused on education and not political protests. I don't know. Seems to me that some of these kids are getting uh, the best education of their lives in participating in these uh, protests and speaking out and speaking to lawmakers um, and and trying to affect change in their community, in their country. Um, but uh, no, not for not for this guy at the uh, the head of the Needville Independent School District near Houston. Uh, you know. <laughs> These kids are getting an education. They're getting an education in civics yeah. and in their government through direct action and direct engagement. You know, you'd think that uh, educators would be interested in that, but he's an administrator, not an educator, probably. So maybe that explains well, part of the difference. He says they're focused on education and not political protests. Apparently, he's also not interested in helping to, uh, uh, you know, avoid their children at that school being killed during school hours or at any other time by a gun, because certainly those kids that school are as affected by all of this as everyone else. Uh, nonetheless, student organizers in Florida are now planning a massive march in Washington, D.C. and nationwide next month on March 24 in order to uh, demand gun legislation. Students are also organizing a national school walkout on April 20. That's the anniversary of the 1999 Columbine shooting. Gosh, before most of them were born. All of them were born. But don't tell the kids at the Needville uh, School District in, in Houston about any of those protests. They might want to take part in it and, of course, be suspended in the bargain. Um, well, so all of this and all of these uh, kids talking about voting, looking forward to voting, looking forward to taking action at the ballot box, that's good. But in uh, and and certainly the news out of Kentucky is good for Democrats, but um, Democrats may have more midterm anxiety than you might think. Jonathan Swan over at Axios reports, given that uh, most pundits are confidently predicting Republicans will lose the House this year. Of course, those same pundits, I should note, were also confidently uh, predicting that Hillary Clinton would easily win the presidency back in 2016. So you listen to those confident confident pundits at your own peril. Swan reports that two sources with direct knowledge uh, told him that at a at the uh, recent Democratic Senate retreat at Mount Vernon, they invited a focus group of voters to discuss the issues that they care about and uh, and the political landscape. What the voters kept saying, according to those sources, quote, Republicans have the wrong agenda. Democrats have no agenda. Well, that's troubling. 
A Senate, or it should be, a Senate aide told Swan that Democratic leadership is acutely aware of that problem and uh, they hope that immigration will fill their agenda gap. The retreat, I should note, was in advance of the Parkland High School massacre, I, I believe, so perhaps gun legislation will also now somewhat fill that gap. Another top Senate aide told Swan uh, their messaging will highlight a broader set of issues, including pensions, opioid funding, child care and student loans. Huh. Student loans. Do tell. How so? Hold that thought for a moment. Swan reports that Democrats will uh, will boast that they move the ball forward on uh, on many of those issues with the recent budget deal. Really? The one that was passed and left dreamers without a fix to DACA and added hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, more military spending, even as it also did add uh, billions in domestic spending as well. well. Take your time talking about those things, Democrats. Axios reports that uh, their toughest challenge is uh, keeping keeping this message from being totally drowned out by coverage of the president's alleged affairs, the Russia probe, the domestic violence cover up uh, in the White House uh, following the uh, resignation of Rob Porter, the White House staff secretary and other stories like that. Democrats are aware that cable news producers would much rather air segments on Stormy Daniels than on pension reform. That is true. But maybe, just maybe, there's another way to get voters really excited to vote for Democrats. Give them something to vote for rather than just against, you know, against the Republicans. Hold that thought for a moment as well. Uh, Hillary Clinton ran into that same problem. Her campaign staff always bemoaned the fact that the national media showed infinitely more interest in Trump's JFK conspiracy theories than her white papers on Alzheimer's, Axios notes. Uh, and I guess that's true. But, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't seem to have as many problems getting the national media to talk about his radical plan to assure health care for all Americans as a right or his call for sending every American to a public college or university for free. Hold that thought as well. Several top uh, Hill Democrats told Axios that they worry that too many of their colleagues think they can just flip the house just by bashing Trump and talking about Russia. If the focus groups at the retreat showed them anything, it's that that will not be enough. Remember, what did those focus groups say? Republicans have the wrong agenda. Democrats have no agenda. But what if, and I know this remains a crazy radical idea, what if Democrats really had an agenda other than Trump and the Republicans suck? That message didn't work as well as they had hoped back in 2016. Maybe 2018 is finally the year Democrats can begin speaking about real progressive issues, one that uh, that might similarly excite those kids now protesting gun violence across the country and who will soon be going to colleges and universities themselves. What if their tuition was free at, at public uh, institutions? Is that really as crazy an idea as many in the media like to paint it as and as Hillary Clinton painted it as when she ran against Bernie Sanders? And if not that, what about wiping out all student debt? That would be about $1.4 trillion worth that could be spent on the economy. Why not do that? The Republicans just gave $1.5 trillion to billionaires who, don't, who definitely don't need it. Actually, they gave a lot more 
but it will result in a $1.5 trillion hole in the deficit. Let me take a quick break here and come back with some uh, quote-unquote radical ideas like that for a progressive agenda that, yes, Democrats may want to start talking about before they get punched in the face with another surprise this November or in 2020. Eric Levitz of the Daily Intelligencer joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. out forever for tens of millions of Americans who will uh, be paying for that school for decades in many cases. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So isn't it time Democrats stand up and start doing something about that? Start doing anything, really, in advance of the 2018 election. Give voters a reason to vote for them, not just against Donald Trump, not just against the Republicans. Following the recent budget agreement between Republicans and Democrats in Congress passed in order to keep the federal government from shutting down entirely, Vox.com's Matt Iglesias pointed out that the price tag for Bernie Sanders' plan to give free college tuition to, uh, to, to public colleges would have cost the government some $47 billion per year, with states picking up one-third of that tab to help send their students to school for free. However, if the plan was modified so that the federal government would pay the entire tab it would cost taxpayers about $70 billion in total in federal taxes. Now, that might seem like a lot of money, but in the budget deal that was passed a week or so ago, the Department of Defense alone just got another $80 billion for, for just next year alone, on top of the Pentagon's already huge or huge, since we're talking about Bernie here, uh, the the huge war-making budget that they already enjoy. So really, this is about priorities. Where and how do we as a people, as a nation, want to spend our money? Apparently, war and what we euphemistically call national defense is a much higher priority than educating our populace or improving the economy, which we would do by actually investing 
in our students. As a matter of fact, as Jordan uh, Wiesman and Anne-Marie Lindemann pointed out at Slate back in 2014, it would actually cost us zero dollars to give free tuition for every public college student. Why? Let's say Congress wanted to do something totally crazy and make all of America's public colleges tuition free. How much more money do you think Washington would have to spend on higher education? The answer, amazingly, is none. Nada, zilch, zero extra dollars. That's right, the federal government already spends enough money on financial aid each year to cover the annual tuition bill for every undergraduate and graduate public college student in the country. Skeptical? Let's take a look at the math. Last year, public college students spent $61.8 billion on tuition. That total includes all of the money they received from federal financial aid programs like Pell Grants and Work Study, as well as student loans. Now, how much money does the government spend on financial aid? Happy you asked. In 2014, it is set to dedicate $30.2 billion to grants, which mostly benefit low-income undergrads, about $36.5 billion to tax breaks, which often benefit higher-income students, and nearly $1 billion to work study. The grand total? $67.7 billion. More than enough to cover the cost of tuition for every student at each and every public institution in the country, from big state universities all the way down to small community colleges. That was from uh, from Slate in 2014. To uh, restate that, public college students spent $61.8 billion on tuition in 2013. And the federal government spent $67.7 billion on grants and tax breaks. That would be more than enough to cover the cost of all of the public university and college tuition in the country each year. Now, to do that without costing the government any money at all, the federal government would would have to stop financing loans to students at places like Harvard and Yale. But as Wiesman and Lindemann go on to explain, that might be a good idea anyway for reasons they offer on the uh, on their uh, video, which I will link to at bradblog.com when we post this show tonight. But OK, we haven't taken up Bernie Sanders idea yet, no matter how good it sounds when you look at the actual numbers. If you haven't noticed, neither uh, he nor Hillary Clinton, who eventually suggested a similar if much less generous uh, scheme to Bernie's to help students with tuition at public colleges and universities, Uh, Neither of them appear to have won the presidency in 2016. And in the meantime, I have been critical for years about the lack of positive progressive programs that Democrats offer to the public to encourage them to vote for Democrats. We're not the other guy. We're not Donald Trump. That's not a great way to win the support of voters. Telling voters, however, what you are for rather than what you are against is far more inspiring to help folks get off their couches and into the polling booth. Vote for us, and here is a list of what you will get. Well, if not free college tuition for now, how about this idea? Wiping out all student loan debt currently held by the federal government. All of it. Does that seem as crazy as free public college tuition did before we broke down the numbers there? Well, as noted, free public college tuition isn't crazy or even expensive at all, really. It could be done for the same amount that we give grants and tax breaks out for right now. And, of course, it all costs a bit less than the raise that the Pentagon got just last week, as agreed to with little debate by both Republicans uh, and Democrats. In the meantime, over at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, Eric Levitz wrote on Friday... 
In America today, 44 million people collectively carry $1.4 trillion in student debt. That giant pile of financial obligations isn't just a burden on individual borrowers, but on the nation's entire economy. The astronomical rise in the cost of college tuition combined with the stagnation of entry-level wages for college graduates has depressed the purchasing power of a broad and growing part of the labor force. Many of these workers are now struggling to keep their heads above water. 11% of aggregate student loan debt is now more than 90 days past due or delinquent entirely. Others are unable to invest in a home, a vehicle, or start a family and engage in all the myriad acts of consumption that go with that. Late last year, Levitz writes, Congressional Republicans passed a $1.5 trillion tax cut which delivered the lion's share of its benefits to the wealthy and corporations. The GOP did not justify this policy on the grounds that all corporate shareholders and trust fund hipsters deserved to have their wealth increased. Rather, the party argued that however one felt about making the rich richer, the tax cuts would ultimately benefit all Americans by increasing economic growth and lowering unemployment. But, Levitz asks... What if we could have achieved those objectives at roughly the same price by foregoing tax cuts and instead wiping out every penny of student debt in the United States instead? He cites a new research paper from the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College, which suggests that this was, in fact, an option that this nation could have but didn't take. Here to discuss that option and whether Democrats might ever come around to offering such progressive ideas to their voters to help give them a reason to vote for them instead of simply voting against the other party is Eric Levitz. He is the he's a political writer and the associate editor of the Daily Intent Intelligencer blog at New York Magazine. Hey, Eric Levitz, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. In your story at, uh, at New York Magazine, you include a, a stunning chart uh, in support of all this, showing that showing the various types of debt held by families under the age of 35 and how much that debt has changed over the years uh, since 1990. Home, vehicle, credit card debt all rise and fall a bit, pretty much all in line with each other, growing uh, by 100% or less throughout that time from 1990 until today. On the other hand, the line showing student debt since 1990 absolutely skyrockets on this chart, particularly from the year 2000 forward on up through today. It skyrockets. It just goes straight up pretty much by some 700%. What happened? How is how are we to account for that uh, for that rise in student debt during those years? Yeah, well, I think that the the reason why we really have a, a crisis here is because uh, this isn't in that chart. But as you said, uh, you've got student debt going up seven hundred thousand percent over uh, from nineteen ninety to twenty fifteen. Around the same period, the um, the average the median wage of a college graduate uh, increased by some marginal sum, like eight hundred dollars or so. So you have these massively increasing debt loads and, and no actual significant increase in um, a college graduate's take-home pay. So as far as what made this debt possible, there are a variety of factors, but, but you know, deliberate government policy is, is, a, key, is a key one. Mm -hmm. um, you have, uh, as federal government policy, to 
encourage as many students as possible to go to college and to gain these skills because uh, of this assumption, and it was very popular in the early 90s especially, that we were entering this knowledge economy um, and that, uh, that that there was this skills gap, uh, mm-hmm. was what it was called in the literature, and that there are all these um, you know high-paying jobs for the highly educated uh, that are waiting to be created or filled but we just don't have uh, the supply is not meeting demand mm-hmm. and if we can get as many people through there as possible um, then you know the, then this will be both great for the economy and great for our young people and this is how we're going to solve all the myriad inequities in our economy that we're opening up uh, post Reagan so partially to do that the, the government took on a larger role in um, student lending, and uh, the mm-hmm. government is a, is uniquely well-suited to function as a student lender, as a lender for, uh, for student debt, because the real big problem with student debt is that, uh, unlike a house or a car, the lender can't really take back from you what you've secured um, if you don't pay. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. once you um, graduate from Harvard Medical School, you gain this human capital that's going to allow you to make a decent amount of money. Um, if you were able to discharge your student debt in bankruptcy by declaring bankruptcy at that moment, then you could unload the debt and, and go and, and keep the, the knowledge that you stored in your brain. And uh, so what is really needed uh, to in this situation is, one, you need to make student debt non-dischargeable in bankruptcy, and two, you need a lender that can follow you anywhere you go. Um, and is able to just get the money by any means necessary, including by garnishing your wages through taxes mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and so the government's unique abilities to collect on the money that loans makes it sustainable for the government to loan enormous amounts of money to the students because they know mm-hmm. that they're going to be able to claw it back. Um, and so that's, that's one of the drivers. So, that's not, so student debt is not dischargeable anymore in bankruptcy? No, uh, and so you can't get rid of it. so you've got this combination of the government encouraging people uh, to to go to universities and colleges, uh, upping the amount that they're willing to to help as far as uh, loans and so forth, uh, and then add on top of that the skyrocketing uh, price of college. We end up with this huge. Uh, debt that is now arguably very much crippling the economy. So uh, what do the authors of that new paper from uh, Levy Economics Institute, what do they see as the upsides to forgiving all publicly held student debt, uh, government buyout of that debt, I guess? Uh, what what would we get if, in fact, we did do that? Right. So uh, as I, you said in your intro, the effect of this is you've got 44 million people uh, saddled with these debts, and um, that's limiting their ability to participate in the economy. And uh, you know, all of this, all these wages that would be going into local businesses and circulating throughout the economy and, and creating markets and stimulating demand is going to um, to either private lenders or to actually the government. Uh, I believe in in 2013, the government actually made a profit. Um, the Treasury made a profit off of these loans. Mm-hmm. So anyhow. Uh, the alternative, uh, if we were to, at the most extreme policy position, which is the one that was studied in this paper, just completely eliminate all that debt, which just so happens to be roughly the same price as the GOP tax cuts, yep. what you would get is, um, by their uh, models and estimation, uh, about 80, between 86 and $108 billion, um, more per year in, in real GDP growth. 
in which is to say that over a decade you're going to get near a trillion uh, dollars worth of additional GDP, gross domestic product. Mm. Uh, you're also going to get 1.2 to 1.5 million uh, jobs added to the economy on an annual basis, and uh, over the period, a reduction in the unemployment rate of between about a quarter and a third of a percent. Um, so a, a significant economic stimulus. Yeah, sounds like a lot of upsides. Uh, so you know, this seems to economically makes sense, at least, I guess, unless you prefer to give that same money to wealthy people and corporations instead on the dubious premise that they will somehow invest it into the economy rather than simply hoarding it. Uh, but what are the uh, what would be the downsides then to this uh, plan as detailed by uh, by Levy Economics? Because this really sounds good, Eric, and I don't understand why it's not even being uh, really discussed by Democrats or, or the media. Um, so, so what are the downsides here that, that they see, that you see in, in such a, a plan? Right. Well, the, the big downside is, um, you know, it's, it is a lot of money. $1.4 trillion is, is a lot of money for the government to spend mm-hmm. on anything. And, and one of the things that I wanted to highlight with this piece is just like what a uh, atrocity, maybe that's too strong, but when, when you think about, when you have written other things, when you think about what the GOP did with that money on their tax cuts mm-hmm. and what we could have for $1.5 trillion a year, you mentioned earlier uh, how, you know, how many times over we could pay for free public college with that sum of money, right? Yeah. But we could, we could have child care. We could drastically reduce, if not eliminate, child poverty in the United States, and, and we chose instead to do it better. But okay, so... Um, so the so the question you know ultimately is like uh, is this the best way to distribute 1.5 trillion dollars? We know it's obviously better than the GOP tax plan, but um, uh, but, but is it the best way to allocate this money? And uh, you know the argument that their paper makes is that uh, it's eminently affordable because the macroeconomic effects of it are such that it wouldn't pay for itself deficit-wise, but it would uh, increase the productivity of our economy such that it, it wouldn't result in inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't really have, uh, it, it would just benefit the macro economy such that it would be worth doing. Um, now, the, the counter to that, uh, the, the, the genuine issue that this proposal has is that it's not obviously as regressive as um, the GOP tax plan, but it is the case that we would be distributing, redistributing $1.5 trillion, $1.4 trillion um, to the people who were, uh, in some sense, fortunate enough to be able to go to college, even um, taking on debt to do so, whereas there is a, a large portion of this country, the majority of this country, um, you know, who are working-class people who never got to step inside a college classroom, and why should their tax dollars pay, um, in this case, with a universal proposal, paying in part to wipe out some upper-middle-class kids' uh, Harvard tuition, um, who's going to make more money, um, you know, and can probably afford to uh, pay off that debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the real, like, genuine political challenge and complaint with this this proposal. Um, and I think that, you know, what's important to keep in mind about it, which is why I sort of wrote that one section of my piece the way I did, uh, is you can look at any policy and sort of look at, you know, uh, do I like how this policy affects this individual or that individual? Um, you know, obviously even Republicans probably wouldn't, uh, as a one-off proposition, wants to increase Harvey Weinstein's after-tax income, right. um, but, uh, or, or George Soros's, right? Mm-hmm. But, but you've got to look at the, at, at the broad picture. And I think when, when you look at the broad picture of which is um, 
you know, you can have a real debate about if we're going to say that we only have $1.5 trillion to spend on progressive priorities, is this where we would put it, where we put it somewhere else? But assuming that we can afford to do a lot more than this, um, if we actually had the will and, and the political organization to, um, if you just look at the world before and after uh, the student debt jubilee, or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, right. the, the, the afterworld is much more just. Um, and, and I think that's true for a few reasons, most critically because, well, it is true that the biggest uh, absolute student debt loads are owned by um, generally people who come from upper-middle-class backgrounds, the people who went to expensive, fancy private colleges, mm-hmm. uh, the people who are failing to pay their loans, the people who the highest delinquency rates are among working-class, non-white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is because they are, uh, in the aggregate, going to lower-quality institutions, in some cases to scam for-profit institutions, mm. uh, which uh, Betsy DeVos is doing her best to uh, rehabilitate. Yeah. But, and then they enter uh, an economy that you know, has a certain amount of, of, of racism built into the labor market. And uh, most crucially, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the fact that, that uh, race correlates with class uh, a lot in our society. But, but if you're a working-class person of any race, but, but especially if you're non-white because of the history of this country, the chance that your family has a lot of wealth that you can fall back on if you have trouble in your first couple of years in the labor market... Uh, is much lower, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be able to take that internship in that high-cost urban center right. uh, that pays nothing, right? And, um, and so these are the people that are really victimized by the, the current situation, and if we wipe that out, you're going to really improve their situation, you're going to improve the macro economy, and even the, the more privileged people who have taken on all this debt, you know, I think that it's important to remember that this was a product of deliberate government policy that was ultimately based on a lie. Mm-hmm. The skills gap was not real. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics last year had its projections for the 20 occupations that are likely to add the most jobs to the economy mm-hmm. in the next decade, the, the real growth field. Uh, I think 14 of them didn't require a bachelor's degree. We need home health aides. We need all kinds of different service workers. Um, it isn't the case that there is an infinite supply of knowledge economy jobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I talked earlier about how the college wages are not really going up. Um, the reason why the government's able to get people to take on these, this debt, which in some cases the government's profiting off of, is because the wage for non-college workers has plummeted. So it is still worth your while to get it, but only because we have an economy that fails people without degrees so badly yeah. uh, that you need to, it's worth going into indentured servitude or whatever to escape their fate. Eric, um, and that's not a just economy. Eric Levitz, I've got uh, just a minute or so left here, but... Uh, all of these points are, are just absolutely fascinating, and you do note there's uh, some more charts in your report uh, on student debt significantly increasing the racial wealth gap among younger Americans. Um, but, uh, you know, there are good arguments, uh, as you note, against doing something like this. Those arguments kind of uh, fall apart once you compare them side by side, and we're talking about pretty much the same amount of money. Uh, to those tax cuts that the GOP had no problem passing whatsoever. Um, but 
This seems to be a conversation that we're not even having uh, on a national level. Uh, why is that? Why, why is this not even a part of our national conversation? It seems that Republicans are very clear, you know, about things that they want to do when they take power. Uh, we can go back to the, you know, the contract with America, Newt Gingrich's, you know, these, we're going to do these 10 things if you put us in charge of the House. Uh, or even, you know, we will repeal and replace Obamacare. Never mind whether they did it or not. They're telling people, they're telling their voters what they will get if they uh, if they vote for them. But Democrats seem to do uh, do that much less so. Why are Democrats so afraid of these big ideas, whether it's free college tuition, forgiving student loan debt, uh, or even health care as a, as a right for all Americans? Ideas which, by the way, polls find to be very popular. But Democrats seem scared to, frankly, scared to death to put these proposals forward. And we're not even having this conversation. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I'd say two things. One, I think that um, actually among the the progressive, the people who are vying to be uh, 2020 candidates who are going to be in like the progressive side of the party, broadly constructed um, in the Senate, are actually doing this, right? Uh, you have Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, mm-hmm. Pamela Harris, are all, I believe, on the record for single-payer, uh, for mm-hmm. uh, free public college. Gillibrand and Booker just vowed to not take any corporate uh, money um, mm-hmm. in their next elections, uh, corporate PAC money. Um, and so th- the people who are who are actually like the 2020 frontrunners uh, seem to be very uh, healthily afraid of the left grassroots and are um, moving in the direction of ideas like this. As far as why the party, like as a whole, doesn't like really own these issues the way that the Republican Party does, I think that that's because the Republican Party is much more homogenous in a whole bunch of different ways. But most critically, it is proudly. I mean, it's complicated in the Trump era. Their rhetoric is complicated, but but, but they are the party of business and libertarian billionaires, and they know what they want. Um, the Democratic Party, as a coalition, is a coalition of. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and the service workers who they exploit. Um, and, you know, in order to keep that coalition together, um, there's a general tendency to, like, not, uh, you know, unify around the most uh, radical ideas um, because there's, there's inter-party tensions and, and tensions between the voters and the donors and just within the party. Mm. And, and that's maybe changing, you know, as the left grows more strong within it. But I think that I think the core reason why the Democrats don't own issues maybe as uh, clearly as, as Republicans might do that. The tension between the donors and the voters. We're back to that. Uh, but hopefully we are pushing forward beyond it. Uh, you're right. You note that uh, both Booker it was it, uh, Booker and Gillibrand who said they're not going to take any corporate uh, uh, money anymore. Was... Yep. Uh, Sanders yeah. and Warren and uh, Maria Cantwell of Washington had already made that pledge. But um, Gillibrand joined and then Booker joined uh, her several hours later. Mm-hmm. And then um, actually uh, Booker was uh, putting forward this bill to legalize marijuana or, or, or end the federal prohibition, and mm-hmm. Gillibrand jumped on that after he did. So they're kind of egging each other left as they each kind of gain some sort of advantage uh, ostensibly uh, for Good. 2020. Good. Moving in the right direction, at least. I hope the voters will keep pushing them uh, since uh, they seem to be afraid to lead the voters. Eric Levitz, uh, a great work on this article. I'm going to link folks over to it. We must cancel everyone's student debt for the economy's sake. 
Uh, and great work on another article we didn't get to talk about, but I will link to it if I can. Uh, Trump wants big government to decide what poor people get to eat. Uh, it was really a, a, a brilliant treatise on the... Uh, even breathtaking for me, uh, the, the hypocrisy of the so-called conservative movement. Uh, didn't get time to talk about that, but I'll point folks over towards it. And uh, Eric Levitz, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. You can find him on the Twitters at Eric Levitz. Uh, and, of course, you can and should check out the Daily Intelligencer at nymag.com. Thanks for joining us today, Eric. Yep, thanks for having me. You bet. All right, quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, just before airtime, uh, Donald Trump apparently sat down for what their White House is calling a listening session with um, uh, a bunch of the high school kids who have been protesting in D.C. today. The father of an 18-year-old girl killed last week in the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, according to the New York Times, made an impassioned plea to the president to act quickly to protect children in the country's schools. He said, we're here because my daughter has no voice. She was murdered last week, shot nine times. That was Andrew Pollack, whose daughter Meadow was one of the 17 people killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He said, how many schools, how many children have to get shot? It stops here with this administration and me. Trump said, we're going to do something about this horrible situation. He said uh, the administration would be, quote, very strong on background checks of those wishing to purchase guns and, quote, put a very strong emphasis on the mental health of somebody. Pollock said it should have been one school shooting. We should have fixed it. And I'm pissed because my daughter I'm not going to see again. He said as his voice raised and he looked at Mr. Trump, he said, we need our children safe. So we'll have, uh, I hope, more on tomorrow's show on, um, on, on, on some of the kids and their response to all of this. Well, I should also add yeah. that Trump in that you know, so-called listening session yeah. backed other proposals that the NRA has called for, like arming teachers and staff. <laughs> We're going to be very strong on giving guns to teachers to yeah. start uh, shooting in their classrooms when this happens. And, that, that, and that ending well. schools as gun-free zones. Well, anyway, uh, I say that by way of saying, yeah, of course, of course, Donald Trump is, is going to end up supporting whatever it is the NRA wants him to. But maybe the NRA... Uh, will finally become as toxic as they deserve to be after their years of supporting terrorists and murderers. 
Um, this story a few days ago, I think this was uh, Washington Post, uh, following the uh, shooting last Wednesday at the Florida high school, a top Republican political donor has taken a stand by tightening his purse strings. Uh, businessman Al Hoffman Jr. told the New York Times that he will not write another check for candidates and political groups that do not support a ban on assault weapons. This is a top GOP donor. The Florida-based former, he's a former ambassador to Portugal. He has donated millions to the GOP candidates over the years and to their political groups. He said, uh, for how many years now have we been doing this, having these experiences of terrorism, mass killings? Thank you. Thank you uh, for calling it what it is, terrorism. He said, and how many years has it been that nothing's been done? He's apparently 83 years old. He announced his decision in an email to several Republican leaders, including Florida Governor Rick Scott, who never saw a gun law that he uh, couldn't somehow weaken. It went to Scott. This email went to uh, former Governor Jeb Bush. He said, it's the end of the road for me. In his interview with The Times, Hoffman said that Republican lawmakers who receive millions each year from the National Rifle Association were unlikely to push for greater gun control. Oh, do you think? The NRA, of course, spent $30 million supporting Trump's campaign in the 2016 presidential election. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, the group spent millions more that year supporting other Republican candidates, including Senator Marco Rubio, who said on the day after the shooting uh, that he didn't believe stricter gun laws would be effective in stopping would-be shooters from committing crimes. The only way to get this message across to these people is to take away their funding, to make the NRA, to, to make taking money from the National Rifle Association as toxic as taking money from, I, I don't know who. I was going to say, you know, name Nazis? some... Nazis? Nazis, okay, maybe that'll work. I was going to say murderers, but yeah, they're they're already sort of murderers. Anyway, one good first step, maybe, hopefully, uh, from this uh, top Republican donor who has said we have had enough and he's not going to play along anymore. We're going to have to see a lot more Republican donors saying the same thing. But, hey, a path is laid one step at a time. All right. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Eric Levitz of New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as always, appreciated you can, uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, on the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And hey, if you had previously been considering giving money to the NRA or the Republican candidates who do their bidding, Please think otherwise by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate and give some of that money to us. We would uh, we'd be very happy to have it. We would appreciate it. We would use it well for good instead of evil. So thanks to those of you already who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the only thing that keeps us on your public airwaves. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. 
all your life You were only waiting for this moment to arrive 